Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Uh, we're return Andrew Stamper is returning this week to continue our best film series. Andrew is a uh, fellow cinephiles and we've been let's see we've been going through our top 5 films kind of trading back and forth for a few episodes and today we are going to tackle Andrew's number 2 film, right? Yes, yes indeed. And that is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So bringing a little horror into the into the podcast, into the reviews here. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun to to do like my favorite scary film. I mean, incidentally, this is also one of my, definitely one of my favorite films of all time as well. I own it on Blu-ray. It's like if mm-hmm. I own it on Blu-ray, then it's either I absolutely love it or I think it's just visually yeah deserves like the, yeah. the 1080p watch. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely one that I've always been obsessed with. Particularly, I mean, I know we're going to talk about this a lot, but the Steadicam shots in mm-hmm. the film, I mean, just that's probably the biggest thing that strikes me about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess we should go into our synopsis first. It's probably a good idea to start from the beginning with that. Do you want to, I mean, it's one of your favorites you want to tackle, you want me to do? I mean, I'm, uh, I'm fine either way. All right. I'll, I'll let you, t- let, let's have you uh, do this one. Okay. I mean, if you want to go ahead and jump in and, and talk about it, but I'm just going to do the, the Reader's Digest. Yeah, uh, give, give us the Reader's Digest. That's a good way to put yeah, it, Yeah, so just real brief synopsis. We've got the story of the Torrance family, Jack and uh, Danny and uh, his wife, Wendy. And we've got some... Uh, Jack is a is a writer, and he's been offered a, a gig to be the caretaker at the Overlook Hotel in Colorado. And basically, he's going to be a winter caretaker, so he's going to go up there with his family and just watch over this hotel that doesn't get any visitors due to the, the inclement weather, bad roads, inability to kind of get there. So he's going to watch over the hotel for the winter months and keep like the machines and everything operating. So when spring rolls around, it can go ahead and be a... a another happening tourist uh, destination for, for skiing and what have you. So they get to the hotel and we find out something really quick about the, the son of the Torrance family, Banny. He's got this, this um, ability where he can communicate uh, with telepathy with other people that have a similar um, ability, which they, they dub uh, the shine uh, he's got the, the that ability, and he can also kind of see things that that have happened. and And I apologize. I'm gonna kind of like stop for a second. One, this is one of like the, the. I'm gonna kind of sometimes go back and forth between the movie and the book, trying to keep what I'm talking about focused. So I'm only talking about about the film because this movie is obviously based on the 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 70s uh, Alfred um, not Alfred uh, Stephen King novel, The Shining. And the film obviously is, takes uh, some serious deviations in the in the middle of the plot. The, the beginning is still fairly fairly similar, but there are some distinct changes. But anyway, going back, we find out that Danny has this ability where he can go ahead and communicate uh, telepathically with other people that have the same ability, and he can go ahead and also see events that have happened in the past and kind of understand that there are other um, spirits and other other events, other things that are that are scary with um um with the guy that lives in uh uh in his mouth i can't believe i just forgot the tony. name tony yeah thank you uh, so tony is the 
is the person that lives inside and that can go ahead and help him communicate and understand what is going on where Danny will kind of take a backseat and Tony kind of comes into the fold and shows Danny and tells Danny things and then sometimes speaks for Danny. But so we learned that about, about Danny pretty early. We also learned that, um, cabin fever is a real thing. And Jack is a recovering alcoholic who hasn't had any alcohol for, for six months He's suffering from a little bit of writer's block. One of the things that he was really intrigued about going over and uh, being the winter caretaker is it would give him an opportunity to finish this novel that he's working on. Unfortunately for Jack, uh, things get a little bit, a little dicey, and he starts <laughs> to lose his mind a little bit. You know, cabin fever takes over, and wouldn't you know it, there are also ghosts in this hotel. So it's a haunted, it's a haunted hotel naturally. I mean, it's a, it's a Stephen King uh, story, so there's definitely going to be serious. Um, supernatural activities that go on and to make the long story short when you take a guy that has a serious writer's block and some cabin fever you're gonna get you know all work and no play and uh jack loses his mind a little bit and with the uh the encouragement of some spirits that live within the hotel he decides that he wants to go ahead and kill his wife and his son and then things happen and uh in the end, it's Jack himself that ends up dead. And, yeah. So I take it you've actually read the Stephen King uh, novel. I did. I did. Um, I read I read the novel before I saw the film. Okay. And I loved the novel. I went through, I'm sure like many other uh, teenagers uh, or teenage boys, I went through a Stephen King phase when I was, when I was younger, and this was one of the... Um, now, this wasn't necessarily my favorite Stephen King novel, but I I, I did enjoy this book. But uh, I kind of resisted seeing this movie for so long because I had heard that Stephen King hated this film, and I mean that was that was like the 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 stuff of lore of you know like how much a Stephen King despised it. Now I think he's softened over the years, and I think he now holds the film in in regard, but. Uh, Stanley Kubrick and I think Diane Johnson, the other screenwriter of this, they take liberties with the with the structure and the story of the film, and, and you know, and they do a great job. They make the film their own, and like I said, it's one of my favorite films in this genre. So I take a, a book that I enjoyed, and and a movie that I actually I, I I really sincerely mean this. I find the film far more superior than, to the actual novel, and I know there there are plenty of Stephen King fans out there that are cringing at that thought, but right. I do. I, I, I'll take the, the Kubrick film over the Stephen King novel. Interesting. I've, I've not read the novel. I did see, I forget if it was, it might have been a made-for-TV adaptation of the, of the actual novel that was more, uh, I guess, true to the original text. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, what uh, was it, Stephen Weber? Stephen Weber, yeah, from Wings, yeah. Uh, it was um, like 96, 97. It was the late 90s that that came out, and that one... Is very very accurate to the novel, and I think uh, Re- yeah, Rebecca De Mornay um, played the the wife that Shelley Duvall plays. I don't know who played the kid, but um, but they, they they couldn't get Scatman Crothers to to, <laughs> uh, to play. But yeah, so the the made for television movie. I think Stephen King may have written the screenplay for it, so it was very close to his interpretations. Of course, it's still made for television. You know, the special effects are a little bit wonky, but. One of the things that I liked is that the 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 film has this amazing, amazing uh, hedge maze, and the hedge maze is one of the most iconic um, 
use of imagery in the film and it's beautiful and I love it and it's so great, but it's not in the book. There is no hedge maze in the book. There there are uh, hedge topiaries, you know, like those, like, you know. Almost like gargoyles. I yeah, mean, but right? like animals. Uh, so there are like lions and things like that, that that's what were in the novels. And uh, the, the hedge mazes, kind of, uh, I'm sorry, the, the topiaries kind of come alive in the, in the novel. But so, I mean, there was a little bit of a liberty that was taken there. But so when they did the made for television film, they incorporated them, but it just looked made for TV. The special effects were really wonky and, um, but the ending was more realistic and I can't remember, what was it? Were there, were there bees or flies there? I can't remember. There's a, a flying critter of some sort that also has a role in the, in the novel. It's been shoot. It's been 20 some odd years since I've read it. And then, you know, about 20 film, 20 years since I saw that made for television movie. But yeah, so the, the made for TV is very, very accurate. If you want to find it, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. I mean, if there was a blockbuster, they would have it. But uh, <laughs> I think the only one left now is in Oregon. Um, but yeah. Which ironically is where they shot the exteriors for, Boom. for this film. Yeah. Yeah. For the Kubrick version. That yeah. Is. And, um, you know, we'll obviously talk about dialogue and lines and everything. But there was kind of like, I don't even know if this was intention. Uh, I've never really looked it up. But I remember reviewing the movie. And when Jack is talking uh, you know, he's like, he's the best bartender from, you know, Timbuktu to Portland, Maine, which all Stephen King novels take place in Maine, but then he like changes it or Portland, Oregon for that matter, which the film takes, you know, was shot in Oregon, but all Stephen King stuff takes place in Maine. So it's just, I don't know if that was kind of like a wink, wink, yeah, right. you know, nod, nod. That's a good nod. I like it. But, uh, do you want to, let's start, we usually start with acting. Yeah. And, uh, I mean hard to miss jack nicholson's right uh quote-unquote performance or is this the real jack nicholson that we're seeing unfurl after doing 40 fucking takes of every yeah, scene at like, minimum it, it, this film is it, it's so great and that if, if obviously every if you know if you're listening to this you probably already know who stanley kubrick is as a filmmaker and if you do then you probably know that he was he was a challenging filmmaker to work with you know he was a perfectionist in every way and Every day would be something new with maybe he wanted to work on. I think like even the principal photography for the, uh, photography for this film took like a year or so yeah. just to go ahead and film. And when it comes to the screenplay, Jack Nicholson didn't learn any of his lines because he knew that they were going to be changed on, on the day that he was filming himself. So he like learned his lines as they were doing like the um, getting ready to film that scene. So and um. So how much of this is Jack acting or Jack just just completely like just just exhausted from shooting something 40 different times and then only have the dialogue change. But I mean, some of his great lines in the film, like the here's Johnny was was just purely um, improvised. I mean, it worked because Stanley Kubrick was living in like Europe. He didn't know who the hell what that was even from but you know the the whole here's johnny you know take from um the um the tonight show with johnny car uh, um yeah yeah. Johnny Carson. yeah but so jack nicholson fantastic obviously this movie follows uh his his oscar winning performance in one flew to the cuckoo's nest and where he played a crazy guy and i think that's one of the things that set stephen king off at uh, things that i had read and I remember watching um, 
Stephen King to a seminar, and I think that one of the things he had talked about was how Jack Nicholson he he had a, he had a hard time seeing Jack um, as Jack Torrance um, because of the fact that everybody already knew that Jack Nicholson plays a crazy guy because he had just played a crazy guy. He had just been nominated or won an Oscar for playing that. So for him, the whole thing with um, Jack Torrance is he's a, a regular guy, a recovering alcoholic that that snaps. So when he snaps, it's a little bit more, damn, that sucks. You know, like this was a character we were tracking. Whereas when we see Jack on camera, he's got that smirk. You know, he's got those arched those eyebrows. eyebrows. Yeah. And uh, you, you, there's always something a little bit sinister uh, about Jack. And how you know, the first scene that we see him with his kids and he's talking about the Donner party. Uh, <laughs> you, you know that, you know, if you're telling your seven-year-old kid about resorting to cannibalism, you know that guy. That guy's a little bit off. So, um, but he was brilliant, and it, it's still one of my favorite. Great, I think I could probably name like ten or eleven Jack Nicholson roles that are among my favorites. But this one, I love it. He he's he's freaking terrifying and hysterical, all at the same time. Yeah. So there. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because he's. It's when they're talking about the Donner Party. And he's like, oh, see, it's okay. He saw it on TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is hilarious. But yeah, those those goddamn eyebrows. Yep. There's just so much going on. <laughs> I love the eyebrows. They're, yeah. But yeah, that uh, I read that too and kind of get that same sense that, yeah, there's no like slow descent into madness quite. Mm-hmm. It's more like a, I don't know. The descent isn't slow. Like he's already, it's almost like he's already going down that path. Yep. And the the overlook is sort of just like a little nudge mm-hmm. yep <laughs> in the direction of insanity but damn he he pulls it off so convincingly and whenever i'm was preparing to do the podcast i listened to some commentary from Garrett Brown who is the actual inventor of the steadicam technology which was probably most you know what's most distinct about the film and i think what, this was the most aggressive use Steadicam up to this point in mm-hmm. time, and he was talking about you know like it was you know Andrew was referring to you know when there's at minimum forty fifty takes in each scene, and he was kind of saying that eventually at towards the end of the takes that Jack would essentially you know he'd be just trying new things he'd mm-hmm. mess with the inflection of his voice or the you know his facial expressions would get a lot more crazy and those th- and those takes are the ones that Stanley would typically go with mm-hmm. in terms of the editing process when they're putting together the actual film itself but uh, let's see um there's a there's some standout moments i one of my favorites is the look on Nicholson's face whenever um Wendy shows up and accuses him or mentions the confrontation that Danny had in room 237. And he's oh. kind of got that bewildered. Like, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know what's happening kind of yep. look on his face, but it's just, oh, it's it's perfect. Yeah. He, he just has like this kind of blank, shocked face. Uh, yeah. Was it me? Yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I, there's almost like a recognition, you know, what I mean? almost a denial or some like bit of denial on his facial expression too, which is... Kind of interesting. 
But uh, he comes across like a he's kind of a dick the whole time. You know what I mean? He's kind of like he reminds me of what you would think of your stepfather being. I don't. Do you have a stepfather? <laughs> uh, I've had stepfathers. You've had yeah. stepfathers. Okay. So you kind of get what I'm saying. But yeah, you can kind of imagine this guy. If this guy was your stepfather, that would be rough, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but can you imagine the amount of fun he must have had overall, other than the 40 and 50 take thing? That, But beyond that, as far as just really getting a, into this role I and hope he, your yeah. teeth. <laughs> I hope he, he had fun with this role because, I mean, he's such a, like I said, it's just such a joy to watch, you know, just this just watch madness on camera for two hours you know and um he he's everywhere in this movie you know and just when you he's he's like at the beginning you you think he's a little crazy and then to the point where you know at the very at the very end when he's like following with a with an axe and um you know talking about um little nursery rhymes how he's gonna huff and puff and you know like uh um He's just, he's crazy, and he's so much fun to just look at, like, oh, my God, Jack Nicholson is terrifying. I hope he had fun. I really, you know, I would, I think, again, apart from the the never-ending amount of takes for each thing, I think I would have loved to have been on set watching watching him do this craft because he's he's awesome. I mean, he's just... Jack Nicholson in a bad movie is still really good. I mean, you can go ahead and watch, oh God, the the Witches of e- of Eastwick for crying out loud. The movie's terrible, great cast, but a horrible film. And uh, at least as my memory, uh, I, I want to believe it's a terrible movie. I haven't seen it in like 20 years, but I remember thinking the movie was terrible. It has like Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Jack Nicholson, and uh, I don't know, maybe Susan Sarandon or someone I can't remember. But, um, but even in that, uh, he's awesome. So you put him in a good movie, and it's like, holy shit, you know, just, I just would love to, yeah, I would have loved to have been on set to see him work, especially alongside uh, a perfectionist like uh, Stanley Kubrick. Wendy, I'm home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Wendy, next, of course, we have to go to the, uh, to the role of Wendy played by Shelley Shelley Duvall. Duvall. Uh, did you know that she is actually from Texas? And was sort of ran. She was like randomly discovered, just a, a handful of years before The Shining, um, got got some sort of small role in mm-hmm. the film, and that's kind of like what ended up launching her career. But I think she was from Houston or something like that. I did Maybe not South Texas. Or, I did not know that. So there is there's definitely a Texas connection. Mm-hmm. And I think this was was an interesting casting choice. And they even mentioned this to Garrett in the Garrett Brown commentary on the film was like, you know, this doesn't seem like the most logical choice to be the counterpart for a Jack Nicholson character. Like realistically, where does she fit mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly in this? You know what I mean? She she's so sort of obsequious. Yeah. Yeah. The whole film. It, it's it's really really interesting, and I don't know if. I love her performance or I hate her performance, but I don't know how I, how I really feel about Shelley Duvall um, as an actress. Um, I mean, I really think that she is olive oil, uh, like a real <laughs> life uh, version of olive oil. But when we're talking about kind of like the pairing, so I mean, 
you see Jack and you have to figure that he's super, super abusive, right? I mean, he's just a, I mean, type A. Yeah. So, you know, to get into kind of like psychology, you, you know, who do they end up with? They often end up with people that, you know, that just seem, or, you know, victims, right? I mean, and there's something very, very, um, what's the word I want to use for her? Um, she, she, I think she played like, and this is why I think that, I I think that she may have done a great job is the fact that I'm, I totally buy her as like the battered housewife, you know, like I, I, I I buy her as that. That being said, I, I, I just don't know if, you know, if she was great in the role or if I just totally like, yeah, I see, I, I I see her. I'm like, I can see this, you know, like, so I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird thing because of the fact that I don't know if she's great or if she was terrible that that I that that it works for me. I don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. The more and more I think about it, the more I appreciate her performance, especially as juxtaposed with the Nicholson really bombastic mm-hmm. um, animated. I mean, she is absolutely incredibly displays that uh, vulnerability mm-hmm. and that's why i was looking for a vulnerable a, that's yeah <laughs> a genuine sort of victim I meant vulnerable gen- she feels very genuine and authentic in not only like her concern for danny mm-hmm. her reaction to the to jack's behavior and and the many different reactions that that she has some of where she's just kind of being agreeable extremely yeah. agreeable yeah and somewhere she just is lo- <laughs> realizing how demented he's really become. I don't know. She's she's really good. I think. Okay. I think like you so have I, to. I, I, I you don't have to give it to her. Yeah, I, I don't. And maybe just again more things that I, I I I just don't know really how to feel because I I just I feel bad for her in the sense because I, just what I what I've read about like the shit that she dealt with like on set and like being you know, losing, losing hair on, you know, like from like the, the stress again, working with Stanley Kubrick. I mean, he's, he was an intense, intense filmmaker. And, um, I, I don't know if it was like light, you know, art mirroring life or, right. you know, but, um, just, just some of the stuff that I, I heard about her like breaking down and, you know, and just how, how torturous, you know, the whole experience was. So, Again, it just goes back to I don't know how much of her performance was um if she was acting vulnerable or she just was like <laughs> right. super she was vulnerable. living yeah. living vulnerable. Yeah. I, neither would surprise me yeah. to be but, honest. Whatever but whatever got on on film was mm-hmm. I think quite well done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to you have to hand it to her. I up until this point, I never really paid much attention to her performance and did f- find her to be a bit um, I don't even know what's the word, kind of sort of mediocre. Mm-hmm. But uh, this most recent film, I, I think being more mature in my understanding of, of film and acting and so forth, I really think you have to hand it to her as, uh, I mean, I'm even trying to I'm trying to figure out someone else who had has played in a similar role or someone that I can imagine sort of topping or being able to portray the Wendy Torrance character as mm-hmm. well as she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had five minutes, I might be able to, you know, name some some actresses off the top of my head. I can't think of anything, but 
and, and maybe for me, it's like, because when I, I saw this movie after I had read the, you know, I had read the book and what I knew okay. of Shelley Duvall, um, just as the actress, she, she was olive oil and she was the, the, I don't know, was it, did she play like the, the mother goose type thing on like Showtime or one of the paid cable channels had like this, um, little segment, like, uh, like half hour shows that they would do for, for kids. And she'd be like the, the storyteller and it'd be kind of, you know, then you'd go and watch this. And she was, she was kind of like the, the Alfred Hitchcock of like these little kid, uh, shows. And she would like narrate like what, uh, okay. what you were about to, about to see. So that was the Shelley Duvall that I knew of. It wasn't Wendy, uh, Torrance who I, you know, who I read about, uh, in the book. And then when I saw the film, but Again, like I said, I, I I I I don't know. I don't know if I think that she's absolutely brilliant in the film or if it's bad acting. I, I don't know. Um, but that being said, I don't know if I would I would change anything about it either. Right. Yeah, agreed. Um, let's see. Let's let's move on to who's our next principal would probably be uh, Danny. And I don't think he I th- he may have done one or two other things in his life. I, th- I don't think he ever did anything else, but Danny Lloyd is the actual Yeah, actor. Danny Lloyd, yeah. Um, also heard in the commentary that he actually c- came up with the whole Tony thing, talking, using his finger right. to voice the Tony character. He mm-hmm. brought that to the audition. Um, and wow, just the kid was, I mean, outstanding as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny was good. You know, I mean... For uh, for a child actor in a in a horror film, right? <laughs> right? I mean, he was he was good. I mean, especially some kid actors as a whole have the ability to either like make a movie really shine or ruin it. You know, I mean, um, but I thought I thought he was solid. I thought he was a good kid. His tricycle t- writing technique. Oh man, his trike yeah, absurdly his good trike technique on point. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm trying to think where. There's sort of a moment where he kind of has this shudder about him where he sees something where he kind of freaks him out that I thought was mm-hmm. that's kind of a standout moment for him. That's like the 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 Stanley Kubrick uh shot that he he uses in several films where they'll just be like that that like it, like kind of like almost like a close up where it's like mid-range and there's kind of like the mouth agape and they're kind of like shaking. Um like he used that shot for an act, a character or two in um, Clockwork Orange, and you know he used that here, and um, another film or two that's escaping me right now. But yeah, I mean, as a kid, he was able to hold that together too. Let's see who else we have. Uh, Scatman Carruthers. Yes, yeah, Scatman Carruthers, my boy, Scatman. <laughs> Goddamn, this guy. First thing I noticed about Scatman is that he has some kind of weird. His legs, or he's got some kind of bow-legged thing right. going on. Yeah, he's a little bow-legged. Yeah. I, I think those are just like old man joints. It must you be. Know? It's, it was quite striking, though, when I yeah. first see it. Now when, when I see it, it's kind of hard to mm-hmm. tell. But damn, he was good. Um, also, not a, not a technical actor. No. And also was put through a lot of torture going through a number of takes. According to the uh, the Steadicam creator, there's a scene. Okay, so the scene where he takes Danny and feeds him ice cream. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, according to him, this was the most number of takes ever. It was like 148 takes oh, God. of this scene. 
and eventually Scatman just like ends up giving up and like finally he's like he's so you know tired basically mm-hmm. that Kubrick's like okay he like he accepts that mm-hmm. it's time to wrap the scene but yeah 148 takes for like some 7 minutes yeah. like this close up can you imagine no no i can't <laughs> i mean that that's that's nuts imagine if you're like the like the person with the slate or you know what yeah. i mean like the gr- the grips yeah shining uh scene take- 27 <laughs> <laughs> take 38 uh take 39 take 40 take 140 like and it's not, i mean and it's not just like all right boom let's do this again you have to rig everything again make sure you know like set Everybody's back up back at their yeah well, like at their i guess they were seated in that scene, okay but still I'm oh sure so it wasn't like the, the tracking no. shot it was okay so it was when they were in like the the freezer or whatever yeah, or, or exactly. they were just sit okay gotcha but yeah, I mean, some of the others that does make me think about the other scenes, especially with the uh, Steadicam operator, because that's a that's a physical fucking job. Yeah, and you're holding up a huge camera rig, and you have got to walk. And if you stop, you know what I mean. If well, the scene for, stops at at a certain point, you might be caught mid stride, or mm-hmm. and you've just got to hold it. I think I had. I don't know where, but for some reason, I think there there was like a famous story about that, like that the camera was like rigged on like a wheelchair, yeah, or something. Okay, yeah, yeah, they did that as well for some mm-hmm. of the some of the tracking sort of style mm-hmm. shots as well. But we also have uh, let's see, Joe Turkle popped up in this, who was also Doctor Eldon Tyrell, mm-hmm. Tyrell Blade Runner, yep, as uh, Lloyd the bartender, little bit role that. He executed flawlessly. Yeah, I, I can't. And, and going back, like I can't imagine how long, just even how many how many takes it took to just do that bar scene. You know, like because again, it, it's Kubrick and the him walking into the you know because there, there's just this great shot of him, like when he when he's going into the gold room and everything, and then going to the bar. Um, yeah, I bet that was a few days just to do that, <laughs> just to do that one scene. No doubt. Sadly, I did not look up who portrayed Grady, mm. but I thought he was pretty outstanding. Oh, well. I corrected her. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he and was awesome. I corrected. Yeah, corrected. Yeah. He's like, that's funny. I have no recollection of that. Um, yeah, I've I, always been here, sir. Mm-hmm. God, he was. He was so great. I and I and I don't. I I didn't even think to look him up. You've always been the caretaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the things that uh, obviously we're you know going from actors to like story, and I, I think some somewhere along the line, uh, a couple times in the film, Stanley Kubrick forgot the movie he was shooting because a couple things don't really like add up a little bit in like plot and story. Um, so there are a couple things I'm like, wait, uh, I don't know if that's intentional or if he just went once somewhere else. I'm interested to hear these, even though we're going out of sequence. Yeah. Let's do it. So, um, I mean, just even the idea of the, where he's going back in time type thing to the 1920s or in the novel, it was like the 1940s. In the, in the book, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more clear, but the, um, the the idea that 
that he's now being kind of like absorbed into the hotel and uh, like even like in the European version of this film or like the director's cut, something of that nature. There was even like a final like scene where we couldn't find we couldn't find his body uh, is disappeared. And it's like an entirely different different type of movie as opposed. So it's like, is this a paranormal story, a paranormal film? Is this a story about isolation? Is this a a haunted hotel with time travel abilities, you know? So there's just a few, a few things that just kind of change because in the book, it's a little bit more clear. I feel of what you're watching where the film is just a little bit, it's just a little bit different. Um, but it, I mean, it adds to it and it's not, I mean, like many other Kubrick films, nothing is really spelt out, but, um, it just, there was just a couple things along the way that it just, it feels like we're watching two different movies in one or three different movies in one. Right on. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking as part of this, so there's a scene near the end whenever Wendy's kind of, I guess, running through the hotel and she sees the guy in the bear costume? Yeah. Blowing yeah. the, the yeah. ball. What, what is it? Yeah. What are, you know, what, it, what <laughs> what's going on here? What is this? But, uh, do you want to move on towards what are we going to cinematography next? Sure. Yeah. Which we'll have a lot to talk about. Here. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you can start it off, but he, I, um, John Alcott. Alcott. Yeah. So, same guy that he's worked with for several of his films, including um, uh, Barry Lyndon, for one. Um, we had I just I just freaking mentioned it. Um, I can't a Clockwork Orange, and what else did he work with him on? Two thousand one, right? I didn't do the research. Okay. Okay. Just, yeah. I'm just right Sadly. now I'm pulling, I'm pulling my like Stanley Kubrick, uh, Alcott like archives right now. Um, but I want to say that those certainly 2001, he did, he know for a fact he did 2001. I'm almost positive that it was clockwork orange because the look of this movie is very reminiscent, is definitely, uh, to clockwork and Barry Lyndon, which I think he had just done. So I think that's why like Alcott was, uh, on this on that one as well that's interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that caught my eye about the film especially is the color palette mm-hmm. it's it's so weird it's the colors aren't there's there are bright colors but they're sort of subdued a little bit okay or i don't know they're not very they're not they're bright colors but they're not very vibrant at least and terms of how they come across on screen Mm -hmm. there's sort of a mutedness even to the brightness like the reds and Mm -hmm. you know there's some pretty um some of the patterns in the carpet yeah Um, i'm thinking of specifically room 237 has this sort of purple and green um color palette Mm -hmm. that's really striking but that might be the only time that i really felt like there was the brightness was really coming through there's there's a subduedness to to the colors in the film Mm mm-hmm and I feel like the same thing is present in, in Clockwork. Yep. Oh, very much. And I mean, obviously different. We're looking at a hotel versus England or, um, but the, the, yeah, the, the look of the two films, I mean, they're, they're, they're like, they're sister films. I mean, they, they very much are that just the, 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 the palette, um, the 
music's obviously a little bit different, but there again, there the music is used in the same way, um, minus the Beethoven. But yeah, yeah, a lot of muted colors, but similar similar imagery that you see in both films. Now, John Alcott was listed as the DP on the film, but as I said, uh, Garrett Brown, the, in, the Steadicam inventor, actually oper- was camera op on a majority of at least the Steadicam shots. Mm-hmm. And I think that he, in, you know, a lot of the most famous ones. Were, like the were hedge fo- maze and... Yeah, the, the... where we're following, the sort of tracking shots. A lot of that was his, his specific operation of the camera, mm-hmm. which is, like I said, this is probably the most you know, the standout portion of the film for me. And that really kind of leads me to another point about just Kubrick's films in general. It's like, what what attracts me to the films? Is it the acting? I don't know if it's really the acting overall, um, although there are some great performances here and there. It's not like you can say, okay, this, you know what I mean? You don't feel like someone's going to win Best Actor Oscar right. for being in a Kubrick film necessarily, right? Yeah, except for, um, I don't, I don't really ever think that the, the, I think the only, and I wish I was, I could speak more to Barry Lyndon, but I mean, maybe Full Metal Jacket, I think is really the, you know, like Private Pile or the Drill yeah, Sergeant. Matthew Modine. Yeah, Matthew Mo- help. Yeah, Matthew Modine. Uh, I think that was the performance of his life, you know? I mean, he's been, he was fun on Stranger Things, but, um. But yeah, like his performance in Full Metal Jacket, I think was probably his his strongest performance. But yeah, that's probably the film. Yeah, I would say as far as acting chops go, mm-hmm. that's probably the most the one that resonates most in terms of acting. What about uh, Tom Cruise in Eyes uh, Eyes Wide <laughs> Shut? Oh man, eh. eh, I I don't you know. And I actually liked what's the guy. Uh, is it Sydney? He actually passed away. Sydney Pollock. Pollock. Yeah, he was fantastic. Yeah, in Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I still don't. Um, the jury's still out on that movie. Granted, I've only seen it. I think I only saw it when it came out. So I maybe I'll have to go back and review it. I don't know. But when I saw it, I wasn't. I don't. I don't think I liked it. But I don't know. I, I think that's a movie that maybe I go back to. But I just remember it being like never ending. Um, it just and then and then like the. The it end of the movie, and slow, yeah. yeah, and then the ending is just very abrupt. And but I don't know, maybe I'll go back and and watch that. I remember the music being really freaking intense. I think there was oh like, yeah, they had like it would be like one piano note. Yeah, like, yeah, ding. yeah. That's that's what it was. It was like one ding. single piano note at that at the the little costume uh, uh, party. Um, What's kind of funny is that I think. Even though The Shining is more of a horror film, I think that I'm more unsettled and creeped the fuck out by um, Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Ultimately, yeah, really creepy film. Mm-hmm. It just gives me the fucking uh, something deeply disturbing about it. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have to go back and watch it. But anyhow, back to uh, back to the cinematography of this film. Sure. I mean, or again, I actually I was wanted to finish my point about Kubrick about what what attracts me to the film is it's not you know what I mean it's you don't really he's not a a Tarantino that it's about the snappy dialogue mm-hmm. either 
or necessarily the performances. It's about the mood and yeah. sort of the visual style. Yeah, look at 2001. I mean, you know, shit. Uh, I don't even know when, like, the first line of dialogue is in that film. So, um, it, it, there, there, it, it's a look. It's a look, and he he's telling a story visually. He's, you know, and that that's what, what he's doing, which is why, again, like, the... Um, the bear blowjob thing is weird um, in this film. I mean, there's just a couple things that just don't. I don't understand. It's why it why it's happening. Um, some interesting things about Kubrick's style. He always goes for that very formalist sort of balanced frame in terms of the composition, where there's a central focal point mm-hmm. that he focuses on, rather than I think traditionally. You know, you have the rule of thirds with the photography, yep. right? And I, you might even be able, you could probably explain rule of thirds better than I can. I'd be surprised, Maybe. but yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know what rule of thirds is. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's just basic photography stuff where you're breaking everything into into your thirds. So you got your top third, middle, and usually when you're when you're taking a picture of, um. Like just a portrait, for example, where you're gonna have your headroom and where the where the eyes are gonna occupy versus where the top of the head and versus a frame, your head's always gonna be in that, um, like the the upper third uh, portion of it, because you, it's a way that you're you're framing somebody. You're you're maybe I can't explain it. I know <laughs> what it is, and I'm doing it with hands right now. I'm explaining on an audio podcast rule of thirds with my hands right now. Um, but that's in essence what. Okay, so I'm I'm thinking about uh, maybe a visual example for the audience would be okay. So that scene that I'm talking about with Halloran and Danny as they're eating ice cream. So I would, th- in most films, I would think okay. So whenever you have a close up of Scatman Carruthers, aka Halloran, he is in the center of the frame. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of where his head is positioned. It follows that rule of thirds, but typically you'll have them like on one side of the frame, like in the left or right corner. He's sort of like in the middle. Oh, you're talking about like the leading, like your leading line? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where he, he, he messes with your whole idea of leading lines too. Yeah, exactly. Where the, the center of the action, where the, where the character is framed, where, um, what we're supposed to see on frame. It's like if you're, if your character is looking, looking to the left, um, Basically, his body is going to be on the right third of the picture, and you're going to see most of the information going that direction. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, so your leading line and everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was kind of what I was going for. And just the, also, like I said earlier, the formalist composition to where, I'm trying to think if of this as a good example of an unbalanced frame, whereas the Kubrick frame is oftentimes very balanced. You know what I mean? If there's like, a hallway, obviously, the way that the hallway is shot is, you know, there's symmetry mm-hmm. involved versus, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't think of a good example of an unbalanced frame. Do you? Can you think of anything off the top of your head? If not, that's fine. Not off the top of my head. But uh, it's just something that's that very... That Jamiroquai dis- music video where he's in the room and like the... Maybe you don't know the video I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, about. definitely. Yeah. The one where all the stuff moves. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Virtual insanity or something like that. Yeah. That's unbalanced. That's just camera trickery. Yeah. Uh, I might have to... Uh, 
put in the show notes maybe some links to some photos to mm -hmm. exemplify it. That might be a good idea to sort of round this out because it's definitely difficult to describe without yeah. a visual reference point. Yeah. The, I think with Kubrick, you probably should have like vis uh, visual notes, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, it is. I mean, this is... And, I mean, obviously we've been watching, you know, with this series, a lot of them have been very visually driven, but we're now tacking, tackling a Kubrick film, which is so on another level with, you know, with all due respect to, um, you know, Ridley Scott or, um, Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is an entirely, entirely different filmmaker. So one, one interesting thing. Okay. So you always have in the Kubrick films often have that zoom out technique where you start on a, an object and slowly sort of track out and yep. zoom out. But what I noticed interestingly in The Shining that I had noticed for is that there's actually a couple of snap zooms where you do a really quick zoom out or zoom in that you typically don't see in in a lot of... Remind me which uh, shots you're referring uh, to. I, I can't think of a specific example. It's definitely one where there's a, some a shocking moment with Danny. He sees something creepy and there's like a snap, a really fast zoom. <laughs> And the only reason I even noticed it is because I've been watching this uh, HBO series Succession. Which How is, is done, that? I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I I'm really gonna, like it. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go ahead and when it's all done, go ahead and binge the season. But I think it's worth checking out. Yeah, but they have you know the more cinema verite style, so it's very much you know even like The Office. You know what I mean? That yep. sort of mockumentary style. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of snap zooms in that, and that's kind of what had right. it fresh okay. in my head when I'm watching this. And you know now like zooms are considered kind of hacky mm -hmm. most times, unless you're going for that specific type of a style, right? Right. Zooms are kind of lame, but... I mean, it's... Yeah, hacky, I think, is the right word. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a technical term. <laughs> um, One cool detail I picked up from as well in the, in the commentary for the film is they use super wide-angle lenses to really mm. make the interiors of of the uh, hotel look really expansive yeah. and large, which I thought was really cool um, and interesting from a filmmaking perspective to learn because I think I even have, I so for my little kind of handy cam, I have a wide angle lens converter mm -hmm. that I really haven't gotten to play with. So it was kind of neat to Yet. get, a, get an idea, get some ideas for like what, what it can do mm -hmm. interior wise. Cause you know, typically you're thinking wide angle lens yep. is an exterior mm -hmm. shot. So I thought that was an interesting technique and it definitely helps give the sense because you get the sense that the overlook is this really immense, I mean, it's like a cathedral in yeah. some of these portions like the lobby area, for example, and just I, feels massive. And I, I think that that's really like really important with the kind of like this theme of isolation because I mean, they're, they're just three people in this huge, huge thing. They're in their own like world and they're all so on their own little island. So being in this massive place by yourself, it just makes you feel very, very small. So, and you see just how it affects more so Jack um, than, you know, than Wendy. Wendy, you know, is um, trying to keep her family together. But you just see how, obviously, just how it really, really affects Jack in a psychologically fucked up way. But I think that's great with the with the use just to make it, you know, make this already big space because I mean, externally we see that the hotel is huge, 
and then internally just to go ahead and um it's just huge i mean just even him he's like launching a tennis ball across the room you know and uh you know just the just the sheer size of that and he's got like this small desk in this massive space and with the and with the cameras to just go ahead and kind of magnify that it just makes everything like yeah just really isolated and and, and lonely and lonely and how that that can kind of being trapped can you know even in you can be it doesn't matter if you're in a little cabin or a massive uh hotel you, everybody's going to go a little crazy with some cabin fever i was going to save this for a miscellaneous section but it, it feels appropriate right here in that okay so the exterior was shot or the exterior shots are from the this hotel in oregon yep that mm-hmm. i forget the name of it i'll, I'll go back and tim timberline. timberline yeah exactly which obviously it does definitely looks massive and then the interiors were actually shot. They were actually built to scale in England. Um, okay. So Kubrick was not a fan of flying mm-hmm. and ended up moving to England. To I don't know if he wanted to be away from like um, Hollywood nuclear war during the Cold War or whatever ah. the scenario was. But yeah, he ended up moving to England and they have this huge, they actually built the fucking sets. Mm-hmm. And they had massive, massive amounts of lighting. Yeah. I mean, we're talking like, I I don't know if the guy was kidding or not, but he was talking about like a million watts of light being blasted through the windows to real to uh, recreate that sense of natural light. Which, right. when you watch the film, it 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 comes across beautifully. Like yeah. you cannot tell that that's artificial light coming through the windows of the hotel during the daytime scenes, mm-hmm. which was pretty incredible. But as part of that, so this the scale of rooms like the gold room or even the lobby wouldn't have even fit inside of the actual exterior hotel that was used. Like the hotel would have had to been much more massive to actually physically fit in those, those rooms, Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of an interesting detail. Yeah. That is interesting. And especially another, there was another layout issue with the way that, um, so whenever Jack goes to interview with, is it Ullman? Yeah. And Ullman's office, something like didn't make sense about the logistics of his office room. I don't have to dig into that and see if I can find a link and post that mm-hmm. in the show notes, but there's something to that as well. About, and that could be, again, just something that was just a practical issue with, you know, the exterior versus the, the interior sets that yeah. were built. Pretty wild. Um, some other kind of interesting things. So, I don't know if you remember the very... So, the opening scenes where they're driving, or Jack is driving, and then later on when the family's driving to the Overlook, um, these amazing, really beautiful, gorgeous helicopter shots that were done by attaching a camera to the skid of a helicopter, and then they actually can do this where they balance the blades of the helicopter, which is not, not an unusual thing, right? but... That's what created that really smooth, kind of beautiful effect where the camera just sort of floating around. Yeah. Like an apparition. That that apparition, I think, is a great, great um, word to use with it because, yeah, there is something, it just, yeah, it just, it almost, it almost feels like a, like that that it's on a steady camera. Yeah, yeah, I was going to, yeah, yeah, that was going to be my next thing is it really was a smooth or a great transition to the way that it felt 
whenever we're following Danny in those mm-hmm. hallways. One of the standout shots for me is actually that first scene whenever Danny, Wendy, Danny and Wendy join Jack and Ullman in the hotel lobby. And there's this very long tracking scene from it's like a profile shot of them walking through and just a very just yeah. long these long takes in this film are just so great. You just don't ever see that. The anymore. slow that yeah, that slow zoom match cut with uh, in the hedge maze. That's like one that of my too. that's like one of my favorites. Just with and then like Jack like staring down at the at the hedge maze. I love that shot so much. Oh, it's yeah, yeah so incredible. The sim- and that, that's a good example of the symmetry of the way that the um, the maze just fits in the mm-hmm. frame and just the lines. That's yep. a good example of that kind of formalist composition. But so that was actually the only special effect they did in the film. And somehow they, so they found an apartment that was several stories up. They reconstructed this, a, a portion of the set of the maze mm-hmm. there and shot overhead um, and then had some extras or stand-ins actually represent Danny and Wendy. Mm-hmm. And then they somehow matched that with the model of the maze somehow. Like they, I think only like the center of the frame is like actual is real right. and the rest is model. Yep. And they somehow mm-hmm. figured all, all that out in editing. Yeah. It, it's, it's just fucking beautiful. You know, it, it, it it's just so cool. And obviously, like we, they wouldn't, they wouldn't make that shot today. You know, it, it would just be CG'd. You know, and it just, it's a really cool special effect, and and it's something that you know um, they've been doing shots similar to that. I mean, shit. I mean, there are some, there are a couple shots in Vertigo with like match, uh, like match pairing, and then um, North by Northwest with the. Um, fuck, I can't remember where. Uh, what, where like all the representatives from different countries where they go and meet in one place. I forget what that's called, but um, it's like the world something. I don't know what they call those things. The United Nations. United Nations. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, there's like the, with the UN building, there's this beautiful match uh, cut where and you just see like uh, like two stars down on the ground and like, and but it's not there. And it's just, it's just a really cool shot. And this one with the, with the hedge maze, it's so great. And they don't, they don't, they don't do shit like that anymore. And it, it's a damn shame because, I mean, visually, it's just so cool. And it's just fun, like, camera trickery versus, you know, special effect. I mean, just CG crap. I have to read you this really funny portion of my notes. So uh, <laughs> it just says, the May shots with Danny and Wendy are so great. Steady cam all day. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, those were fucking incredible. Yep. Um. The Kubrick stare shot of of Nicholson just kind of like staring mm-hmm. blankly, yeah, reminiscent of again you kind of we talked about that earlier about the Kubrick stare. Yep, um, and I was thinking Private Pyle's demented stare as well. Yeah, there, yeah, it's just something that he that he that he uses, uh, or in Clockwork Orange where. Uh, the old guy feel uh, finally realizes that uh, he's helping out the guy that beat the shit out of him earlier, and you just see him in his wheelchair, and he and he's like doing this convulsing thing, and his eyes are doing the same thing, and it's a, it's the same shot. It's just something that Kubrick uses in a lot of his films, and it just it's just cool. The overhead shot of Danny playing with his toys, um, and then the tennis ball rolls up. Mm-hmm. 
ominously. That was a freaking that was great suspense. There, that was genius. I think. Mm-hmm. In terms of storytelling, like that's a fucking creepy moment. Yeah, for sure. Maybe one of the creepiest <laughs> the whole film. Yeah, I don't even think we're really even. We're, we're talking. I think we're just kind of like nerding out on Kubrick. We haven't really talked. I mean, this movie is freaking terrifying. And I mean, I, ha- I chose this movie because it's one of the scariest films um, I've ever seen. Just with the things that are happening in the film. But yeah, I mean, just use of like terrifying imagery you know so you've got that um that's so good just even just the creepy freaking twins in general are fucking horrifying come play with us danny yeah forever yeah and ever and ever and just the way that their their voices sound too right i mean it's just just the come play with us danny you know it's just like normal kids don't sound like that um it's funny. So we'll go from like the creepy um, imagery to something I thought found really funny is whenever we have the scene where Halloran is, I guess Danny is, they're communicating via The Shining. Mm-hmm. And we see Halloran in his room with his feet up. He's watching TV, but the camera slowly pulls back and he's got these twin paintings. So one above his oh. t- <laughs> one above his TV and then one above the uh the bed that it's like these two beautiful african women with uh you know with large afros and their and their breasts throughout yep and i was like all right there halloran i i get you man <laughs> i get you dude i like you <laughs> i like you even more now yeah <laughs> yeah i mean uh also again it's it's not a kubrick movie without boobs i mean the dude, love, I mean, even if it's in a portrait, you know, like the the guy, the guy just has to have a pair on on camera. Um, I th- I think one great example too in terms of show and don't tell, and maybe this I shouldn't have done this in this <laughs> section, but um, so it was also a great scene in terms of composition is whenever Wendy discovers the typewriter pages, and. So she's kind of reading through those, and it's you know just nothing but all all work, all work and no, no play, play makes Jack, Jack a dull boy, boy, right? And it's page after page, and she's like free, and there's no dialogue in this scene, no dialogue. She's going through them, those, and it's that really thin paper that mm-hmm. typewriters used yeah. to use that we don't even have, you know, most people don't even use that anymore. Yeah, and so she's just going through and through and through and through, and then you get um, you get this silhouette of Jack behind her mm-hmm. coming up that's just like ah oh shit it's kind of she's re- this is the first time she's really coming to terms with or not coming to terms but realizing how demented he really is yeah at that moment she's really starting to grasp it that's maybe the the crescendo moment mm-hmm. no it, it's it's awesome and I mean, that's such a great moment but i'm Yet all I, I can't get out of my head were just like the fun, like the the little typos he had, uh, like occasionally where he'd misspell things where he just he was just so obsessed. Uh, but I, I I love that, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I had heard that they went ahead and with those I mean they they did they 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 typed that you know, uh, a lot. And then they did it in multiple languages too, but not like it, uh, they, they, so it doesn't like, if you watch this movie in Italy, it doesn't right. say all work and no play, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. It's something entirely different. Um, and then there were like multiple languages that they went ahead and, 
did that in and it's not like they i mean they they did that shit on typewriters and i'm just like it's crazy just more like attention to detail from stanley kubrick to just go ahead and retype something in the lot in, in the movie you know eight or nine different times so i from the commentary on the film they said that they had an assistant that in her downtime would be typing these pa- actual God, pages, yeah. like hundreds of pages. Yeah. And just, they just told her different formats, mm-hmm. different styles. Cause you know, some of them are like clustered together in paragraphs. Some of yep. it's just lines. Some of yep. it's just straight typing, which I thought was an interesting, was a great choice too, just to like fuck with the format to where mm-hmm. it's not even just the same thing every time. Yep. Just really helped propel that idea of him being a madman. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It, in paragraph form, different paragraphs. Just, yeah. <laughs> So good. Anything, uh, any other standout sort of cinematography moments or um, camera work that you want to point out? The... I love the shot. Obviously, I, I love the shot with him, you know, busting through with the axe and the the here's Johnny, like the classic moment. But I, what I really love is when, she, you know, she gets him out the, out the window and you just see like the snow, like, all pushed like up like the side of the of the hotel just like how they're snowed in but just like how huge like the, the snow was was climbing up you know like the, the side of the of the room just like from the the exterior uh, exterior looking toward the hotel um love that and then obviously the just the the the, the chase uh into the the hedge maze i, I just again oh, yeah, that's, a, that's a fucking amazing mm-hmm so interestingly, the the snow was salt. Yeah, <laughs> can you imagine how much fucking salt? It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of salt. It'd be a lot of snow. It's. I mean, it, it's. Yeah, but that's. But yeah, sliding that's a down lot, salt. That's a lot of fucking salt. <laughs> and the product, the crew was like, "That's sh- the salt will eat your boots. It gets in the. You know, it destroys. I couldn't even imagine. Rubber. Yeah, what? Yeah, what that would have done." Your skin, I mean. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm going to step into, I guess, our, our miscellaneous section. I've covered sure. so much of this already, it feels like. Yeah. Um, the carpet patterns we haven't really talked about, but those I love it. are really great. There's the, the notable one, you know, that we always see, and they'll even have this at the Alamo Draft House where you can take the picture, is sort of that orange, black, mm-hmm. red pattern that's like kind the, of like, like a, a hexagon or something yeah, like, like that like a hexagonal sort of pattern yeah. with like almost a floral hexagon ish mm-hmm. weirdness there's the really muted carpet pattern with pinks and yellows mm-hmm. in the gold room that i don't really like visually <laughs> like i don't i don't really like that muted pa- color palette but it's cool it's mm-hmm. interesting and then i already mentioned room 237 with the greens and the purples yep that one I want that carpet. I need I need a piece of that. I need like a rug with that right somewhere. At least a doormat or something. I wonder if you can buy that somewhere. I mean, if Alamo can go ahead and get the Right, that's true. Like the hexagonal carpet for like the uh the movie theater, which by the way I I, I love that. I love that uh That's great, yeah. It's just one of my favorite things about the Alamo draft house there. Um they don't do it at all of them. It's only is it they don't I'm I, not even sure. I've seen I, it at the one on the South Lamar, Lamar twice. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I mean, if Alamo can get it, I'm pretty sure yeah. you can probably go ahead and find yourself some right. room 237, which in the book, by the way, was room 217. So they said that the reason they did that is 
there was an actual room 217 at the Timberline Hotel, mm-hmm. and the owners of the hotel asked that they not right. use the actual number. Mm-hmm. So that sort of explains the, the difference there. Another random thing. It looks like I covered most of my miscellaneous shit other than to say that um, Ridley Scott ended up using some of the footage. Okay, so we were talking about that. The driving scenes to the Overlook, Ridley Scott actually reused some of that for the ending of the theatrical release of Blade Runner as well. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that uh, to me in like a conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think either I probably mentioned that during the Blade Runner. And, and before then, I well. didn't had no idea that I would use uh, The Shining. So, right, just making this crap up as I go along. Which movie I want to use? <laughs> let's get into uh, let's get into some of the thematic elements. Okay. And uh, I don't know. Do you have a, th- a theme? I mean, just a couple. Yeah, just a couple I'll that you, I had mentioned. You know, I'll let you start out if you if you want to review. So, the idea like a family, right? I mean, we we kind of talk a little bit about how. Being snowed in uh, can deteriorate uh, a person. I mean, it, it seems in jest of like um, w- just randomly bringing up the Donner Party in the beginning of the film. It's like, well, why would you? Even, why would you mention that? But the the history of the Donner Party is really kind of sad because it was a group of settlers that were like, I don't know, like eighty. 90, 100 people or whatever that made this trek and um, from, I don't know, like maybe maybe North Dakota or something like that, but they were trying to get uh, to California or like the, the West and they ended up getting trapped in the Sierra Nevadas and by the time they got to California, like almost half of them or more than half of the people had, had died and some family members left others behind and they had been, you know, um, and then some people had, when they died there, there, you know, some people, you know, they, they ate some of their remains, they ate them up. Um, but the whole thing was, I mean, you had these people that were, that were in, you know, due to the, you know, the, the crappy weather, they were trapped and, um, you just see what, what being in an isolated thing can go ahead how that can affect, you know, where, uh, husbands were leaving their wives behind and things like that and uh, or vice versa women leaving you know leaving behind and uh, people dying and so when you go ahead and talk about this family that's kind of trapped and you just see how when you are in an environment where you are completely trapped what are some of the 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 horrible things that can happen whether it's cabin fever or just being trapped in and how that can deteriorate families so just that was one of the one of the things that that I looked at. Again, isolation is huge in this. Again, being in the middle of nowhere, um, not not that Colorado is the middle of nowhere, but obviously they're they're trapped in this giant space, and it's only the three of them. And the person that comes to try to save them fucking dies, right? You know, <laughs> so they are alone. You know, so they are completely on their own. So the the whole idea of isolation is a big thing. Um, so there are just those are a couple themes that that stand out to me. What about what do you? What's your opinion on Jack's relationship to the hotel in terms of is this an eternally recurring thing? Is the hotel playing out these scenarios over and over again over the course of time with with different people, but the same? Uh, right. Know, there's some kind of weird 
You know what I mean? Because we mm-hmm. have the the ending of the film shows Jack in a photo dated nineteen twenty one or twenty seven, something like that. Yeah, it was something. It was in the, like the twenties or whatnot. But I think earlier when they show that same photo, he's not in there. So it's just out. He this hotel absorbs uh, this type of personality. I guess is really what it, I don't. I don't think it's specifically Jack Nicholson reliving this this life over and over again because we we learn the beginning where who was it uh grady or grady what was his name there was a del well there's two that's what threw me out which yeah. i didn't necessarily catch the first however many times i saw the film was mm. there's a delbert grady and then there was a charles grady so okay. there's two grady's mm-hmm. both involved with the hotel but i can't remember which is the the sort of um like the guy he meets in the bathroom right who is also the the spirit that releases mm-hmm. him from the uh, the deep freeze? Right. Um. So, and this is where like the the European version is is the fact that like they they don't find his body. You know, they they, they even go and you don't see that 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 shot of him like frozen in the in the snow with a with a frozen dead Jack Nicholson face. It's just the they're. It's I almost kind of like want to call it the the Friday the Thirteenth ending where they're like we didn't find we didn't find the kid in the lake there was no kid <laughs> in the lake uh, we didn't find Jack we didn't find you know there was no whatever so it was a question of whether or not was there ever really a Jack did these people really exist are we watching just watching these spirits you know just go through this never ending motion where they're they're just reliving these things uh, but by getting rid of that you. I mean, I think it, it it's just open for your own interpretation of is is it is Jack Torrance always going through this you know does he go by different names is this something that we're just watching this or through different generations there are people that embody the same afflictions that that Jack Torrance has and the the hotel manipulates that that person and consumes them i don't know i mean it, it just so I, I don't i don't necessarily have an answer it, it just i i don't i don't think they're it's intended to i don't know yeah my interpretation was always that jack was absorbed into the hotel and that was the explanation mm-hmm. but looking back i'm not 100 percent sure if i i'm still pretty strong on that initial um theory i i, I firmly believe that he's absorbed into the hotel it's just like the idea of is was it you know like it was always you you know was it was it always like is it this something that we just see him recurring or was this specific one just brought back into this absorbed into the hotel and now just another face in the painting from the 1920s because so Ullman at the beginning mentions that the hotel was built on an ancient Indian burial ground right which sort of would be obviously the source of a lot of the paranormal activity. And he even also mentions that the hedge maze has been there since at least the time, um, at least coincides with the construction of the hotel at the very least. So it's as old as the hotel, if if not older, apparently, mm-hmm. which seems weird, but um, i trying to think what else. So when Jack's describing, he even mentions, you know, as soon as I got here, I I felt as as though I'd been here before. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's what leads me to question, is is this a clue as far as this is some t- sort of eternally reoccurring thing that's happening mm-hmm. over the years with maybe this Jack's spirit is inhabiting different bodies? Or right. I, there's some, right. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whatever the case may be. Because um, Jack also tells Danny later on, he's like, I want to stay at this hotel forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, given the ending, right? Yeah. So it, it, it's if you, and if you completely disregard um, Danny's arc and the whole idea of the shining, then I think that that kind of works. But or because of the fact that I mean Danny's operating on something at at a higher plane, you know, like so if this is something that's been going on and like the hotels, you know, um, absorbing them, then what's the point really of the shining? Like what's, what's right. the point of, of Danny's higher, higher purpose? I don't know. I don't know. And then Jack is also unsuccessful at, whereas yeah. Grady was successful. Exactly. Yep. Giving mm-hmm. in and actually succeeding at killing his family. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe that just, maybe, the ambiguity is intentional, like you're saying. I think. I so. think. I think that's I, like many Kubrick films. I think the it's supposed to be a little bit ambiguous with what what to make make of it. And I think I don't think there's a wrong a wrong interpretation. Anything else in terms of thematics that you want to go into before we wrap up with writing or any kind of? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I mean. But I'm going on record. I also, I too think that he just straight gets absorbed. But, you know, I, I just don't know if I'm right, you know, so. Right on. So we'll go into the writing of the film and maybe some dialogue that kind of stands out for us. So as you had mentioned earlier, this was um, co-written by Kubrick and Diane Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember hearing that she wasn't necessarily, uh, I think she was more of a novelist or a fiction writer than strictly someone who had written for the screen, Mm -hmm. which um, might have worked well for Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know her her bio, so I I don't, don't, you know, maybe if I pulled up, like, Wiki or uh, IMDb, I might have a little something. But all I know is that, you know, she and Kubrick are the the principal, like, writers of, of... of what we see with the, the loose adaptation of Stephen King's novel. And so what I had mentioned earlier is, you know, I t- generally don't come to a Kubrick film expecting or looking for dialogue. That's for great dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's more about the, the mood, the characters, the story, the, the visual experience, but there's definitely in this, in this one in particular, there's some standouts for me. I think there, one is the uh, scene with Lloyd the bartender, and where he takes that first drink, and he goes, "Here's <laughs> here's to five months of sobriety, and all the irreparable harm it's caused me." <laughs> oh, that was so great. Um, I mean, Jack, I think he has all the great lines really Definitely. in this film, right? I mean, but. Still, why don't, why don't you start right now by getting the fuck out of here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to do a Jack impression, but just like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash brains in. You know, like, I love it. Uh, it's such uh, a great line. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was a great one. 
And then again, I've never heard the little pigs uh, more terrifying than when he was just... And again, I think that was just improvised. Just like, I don't know what the hell, you know, what you want me to do. Um, so he just went ahead and did a little, improvis- uh, little improv. Uh, what's another great line? I think maybe my favorite written scene in the film is when he encounters Grady and they go into the bathroom, which the bathroom also, the craziest fucking bathroom you've ever seen. This is the bathroom that you expect to get murdered in because all of the stalls, (laughs) there's like bright red stalls in the restroom and, oh, but just such a, and that, that was such a great, all around scene in terms of visuals the visuals, the dialogue, the acting, everything really came together to create just, I trying to think of another scene in the film that really stands up to that one in terms of just, there's a subtle crazy, like it starts like Grady starts out so friendly. Oh, I'm, you know, he's so apologetic for spilling Mm -hmm. the drink on, on Jack. And he's like, Mr. Grady, have you, what does he say? Do you have a wife? In, or what does he say about? He asked him if he has a wife and kids. He's like, yes, they're around the hotel somewhere, yep. sir. And he goes, Mr. Grady, weren't you the caretaker here? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, you've always been yeah. the caretaker. Um, God, he was so good. Like the, I just love the when he is talking when uh, he's talking to Grady and like the the whole. I'll just call it like the corrected monologue i love that his whole like corrected monologue is so good once my you know like she, uh she stole a, a matchbox and tried to burn the place up but i and tried to burn it yeah, down yeah, but i corrected her <laughs> and then my wife tried to stop me so i corrected her too or whatever the lines are but yeah i love that that little monologue there. something about like your son um yeah I forget something. he's a very willful boy yeah very <laughs> willful boy Perhaps they need a good talking to. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and then it's not really um, great dialogue, but it's probably one of the most chilling forms of exposition ever when uh, Homeboy uh, from, oh, God, uh, at the beginning where he, he's telling the history over the Overlook, and and then Jack's like response is like, it's quite a story. I'm glad, you know. That, I can see why he didn't tell me. Why yeah. Your people and so-and-so. Yeah. To tell but me just that. like the, that little expositional piece of, I mean, it's, it's a lengthy piece of exposition, but it's really, really good. I loved it. The last thing on my notes was that bash your brains, bash your brains in thing again, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we've already covered. So. Do you have any final thoughts you want to go into, maybe? Um, no, no, necessarily. The I think why I, I I chose this movie is I like to have movies that if I that I get the same type of reaction the thirtieth time that I saw it uh, when compared to like the first time I saw it. This movie, when I watch it even now, it's still there's just still something about it. I'm like yes. It has great replay factor, you know, it just, and there's something new that I can get out of it every time I see it. And it's just a beautifully crafted, scary film. And it's a fantastic Kubrick film. And 
I think even, I'm not going to say the movie was panned, but I think it was, again, another great movie that took a little bit of time for people to kind of find, for it to kind of find its place. Because I think there have been, there were filmmakers that, I think this movie was nominated for a Razzie or two, um, which blows my mind. Right. Um, so for it to be nominated for like the, for for those that know, don't know, Razzie are like the movies that are, yeah, that the are worst movies. Yeah, the worst movies nominated for bad awards, like, like Showgirls or yeah, like I think Kubrick was nominated for the worst director, uh, but I could see in a different way because he was probably fucking in, you know like horrible to be around with uh, with his demands. But um, so so I, I think this is a movie that's found its place over time. I don't know if, necessarily know if I think it's a a better film than the exorcist but for me it's my it's my I, I i take this one over the exorcist for for a scary film just because yeah i mean i i for me there's a lot more to sink my teeth into um yeah i i would agree with that for sure but i know that obviously the exorcist are the movie that people usually talk about as like the greatest scary movie but this one i think there's just a little bit more complexity to and and i and i love the fact that you have two masters of their craft kubrick and stephen king who told their own version of this film, and I think both are both are great in in, in different ways. Um, yeah, but that, that's really that's really all I've got left to say. Right on. I totally agree with your um, articulation that this is a film that you can always rewatch and mm-hmm. always feels fresh. And I've seen this movie a lot. Yeah, a lot because you know it would come on. I think you know right around. Halloween, they played this on like AMC mm-hmm. or you know one of the those that caliber of uh, of network frequently. So I'd always catch bits and pieces, and damn, it's good. Yeah, I don't think there's another horror film or, and I don't I don't know if I even consider this to be horror because I don't know. It sort of is, but it sort of isn't. Right? To me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like Kub- It's like a Kubrick film. Yeah, <laughs> more so than uh, than horror to me. But the damn, the, visually, it's just so great. Mm-hmm. The steady cam work every time, I just can't get enough of it. It's so haunting. Those hallways following Danny, um, it's just so well done. And especially, it's such a contrast to what we're used to in modern filmmaking. Right. With the amount of cuts and so forth, just these long takes and long shots, mm-hmm. really letting the atmosphere breathe yep. and the film itself breathe and build on that tension is just outstanding. Of course, Jack Nicholson is a f- maniac, a brilliant maniac. Um, one of my one of my friends posted something on his Instagram account, kind of like the kind of like a behind the scenes of them getting ready. Um, where Jack is just like fully intense. He's got the axe in his hand and you just see Jack Nicholson before like the camera starts rolling, but the camera is rolling on like the, the other side of the wall and you just see him making like crazy faces and just kind of like shouting at himself and getting like, just trying to really like get hyped up and pumped up for that moment. And if you can ever get your hands on it, I, I know that the clips are clips out there. You could probably find it on YouTube. Give it a watch. Just try to see if you can see like behind the scenes, Jack Nicholson, the Shining, because I think you'll really find a, a way to appreciate Jack in it, just in a different way. Because you're you always see him either Jack as Jack and you know in an interview and, and he's great, or you see Jack on camera and he's great. 
but seeing Jack the person try to get into Jack um, as a character, or you know, Jack the person getting into Jack the character is really neat, and how he how he did his process for this one specific scene, I think, is really really cool. That kind of brings up a conversation I had with a friend actually yesterday, and we were talking about I forget who it was, which actor, but he was just you know he's done some production work and has been on set, and he was just talking about how you know whenever you're actually there like on set there's just a camera there there mm-hmm. there's nobody helping you um get into character or you know create the create that character the dialogue the mannerisms the vocal inflections all of that all of you are responsible for coming up with all of that mm-hmm. and yeah. when you really look at acting through that lens and you can just see that some i mean some people like a jack nicholson are just the talent the the you know what i mean the to their the dedication of their craft and how they're able to create these nuanced characters is just so much more impressive in that light because it's like you know you just you've got a dude over here in a ponytail and right <laughs> <laughs> you know your grips or whatever uh, not to disparage the grips too much but mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah you have like that that technical side you know and they're they're just going through their emotions of what it is that they have to do but yeah the the acting side is just entirely different and just to see someone their their process of what they have to do is really really cool especially a, a good actor is really fun to to watch just to see how their what their process is to get into that moment to get in like because i mean we're we're like oh they're getting into you know they're they, they're 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 saying a line. They're saying a line that's on a on a page, but they're they're getting into a place where like, all right, I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna kill my wife and my child. And <laughs> right. How do you get to that moment where it's it's like, yeah, I I believe that. I, I I believe that this otherwise good human being who at the time was, you know, um, I don't know, dating don't know. Angelica Houston. Yeah, yeah, dating Angelica Houston at the time is now about to kill Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd. <laughs> Um, it kind of reminds me of like the, uh, do you remember a few years ago when Christian Bale was yelling at the guy? Oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. I'm trying to get into me bloody scene and yeah. you're moving the light. Blah, blah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. That's, yeah. I love that little bit too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the shining, a fabulous, fantastic film, definitely plenty of rewards on rewatch. Pay attention to the cinematography in particular. I think it's outstanding. It's a huge inspiration for me as a filmmaker, as a film critic, as a film, you know, just a fan of films in general. Lo- absolutely love this film. Um, obviously, Kubrick is, you know, one of my idols. So it was a real, really fun to actually be able to talk about this one because even though it's one of my favorite, it wasn't going to be in my top five. So right. I'm glad that, that you brought it in. Well, my pleasure. And as always, thank you very much for, yeah. for having me. Thanks for coming back. So we're down to our both of our, our top films only remain only remaining. So mm-hmm. mine will be the thin red line. Have you have you made a decision yet? I haven't. I'm trying to figure out what genre I want to do. You're doing a war movie, so I might do my favorite war film. I don't know. Um we'll 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 see. But we're gonna do thin red line, right? And I don't know, maybe I'll choose like a really, really terrible war film just uh, completely because we're doing a great film and my favorite war movie, um, Braveheart. No, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I have no, I have no idea. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure it's good. 
what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to cross my fingers. I'm going to shoot out this email this evening is I'm going to try to get, um, I've had him on the show. I've mentioned him to you before, but he actually, Mark Bristol came on the podcast. He storyboarded the thin red line. So I'm going to put it out there and be like, dude, we're doing this series. It'd be awesome if you could come and join us. So hopefully I can somehow talk him into joining us and we can have the three of us that do the thin red line. How epic. sick would that be? Yeah, no, that would just be like, all right. I, there's no reason for me to do a number one at that point. <laughs> but uh, hope, fingers crossed for that. Um, but once again, Andrew, thanks again for coming out, man. Thank you very much. And thank you all for tuning in to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. We are signing off this week.